Well, our names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own song so we wouldn't have to pay for anyone else's copyright infringement. And we live in a van and we eat from the trash. Making this podcast open for cash. You better listen up because we probably won't last. Because we can't compete with nonsense. Hypnotizing nonsense. Welcome to episode 98-1, Rise of the Transhuman. Uh, this is Gumby. And Teresa. And boy, of all the topics we've uh, taken on to cover, man, this one is uh, one of the more, ooh, I don't know, uh, intense? Sobering. Sobering, that's a good word. Um, and there's so many ways to try to tell this story. Um, so we're just gonna, you know, as usual, we just brainstorm a bunch of ideas, do some research, and we're just gonna kind of cannonball into it and see what happens. Um, roughly, we're gonna try to, you know, the first question, of course, for some of you might be, what the hell is a transhumanist? Which was one of my questions. Um, so I'm gonna try to start at the beginning, a little bit after the Big Bang. <laughs> oh, God. So... Transhumanists um, trace some of their roots to science fiction, and um, they say they get a lot of their ideas from science fiction. I've always liked science fiction. Um, science fiction has been used, like I'm thinking of uh, Rod Serling in The Twilight Zone and even the the original Star Trek as kind of a way to, uh, you know, have social commentary because at certain uh, times in our history, if you talked about race, if you talked about sexuality, um, you'd be censored. But if you put it <laughs> on another planet, what like are you that, laughing at? Well, like, like now. Well, yeah, actually, <laughs> come to think of it. And uh, yeah, but if you put it on another planet, you know, you could talk about some really profound things and anybody paying attention would recognize the parallels, but it would uh, be a way to kind of sneak past the censors. So I've always liked that about science fiction. And science fiction, as uh, people like Isaac Asimov have pointed out, is uh, and Jules Verne, you know, can be really prophetic. Um, just letting your imagination go, considering the possibilities of what could be built, what could be done, um, other worlds. Uh, Ray Bradbury is another person that comes to mind. And very often, um, you know, and looking back, we realize, wow, that, that science fiction story was really prophetic. So this is why the transhumanists, you know, credit a lot of their uh, their roots, their foundations to science fiction. And it reminded me of how L. Ron Hubbard of Scientology uh, fame, the founder, uh, he was first a science fiction writer, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I've always found that bizarre, you know, that a uh, science fiction writer would actually found something that, I don't know if they identify themselves as a religion, but... Like most of us on the outside consider it a religion or a cult anyway. <laughs> but uh, transhumanism is much, much more, as I think we'll, uh, we'll um, explain here shortly. Um, transhumanism also traces its roots all the way back to the Epic of Gilgamesh. Um, and this is a story that uh, 
I think I read it one time. Teresa says she certainly read it at one time, but it was a long time ago, and I wish we yeah. had a chance to reread this. But some of the um, the ideas in Gilgamesh, why transhumanists um, see this as one of their foundation stones, um, is the quest for immortality. Apparently the fountain of youth, the elixir of life, is mentioned in this story. Gilgamesh is one of the oldest stories of our culture. Um along with, like, the Old Testament. You know, it really is a poignant story that um, describes an ancient time where some of the foundational assumptions, views, the story that we still exist in, that we've created around ourselves, um, are taking root. Gilgamesh is a very ambitious hero. Mm-hmm. Um, Derek Jensen describes the Gilgamesh story as a, uh, You know, the story of our civilization um, beginning to deforest the land um, to have a really adversarial, destructive influence on the land. Apparently, Gilgamesh, at some point in the story, um, defeats the spirit of the woods, the forest. Um, So it's a story of man defeating, subduing the wild. He apparently cuts down an entire forest and builds like one of the first cities with it. Gilgamesh takes place somewhere in the Middle East, and, uh, you know, it's a story with a very tragic ending as we look there now, because now it's a desert. It used to be a lush forest, the Cedars of Lebanon. This was part of the legacy of Gilgamesh, that barren desert. Um, And that's why it's so, it was startling because when I read it in maybe 10th grade in high school, I couldn't bring all of this, like, I couldn't synthesize all of this together, but it is the story, the beginning of our culture. Yeah, you can really see the seeds of science and technology here, because that has been the aim of science and technology ever since, is how to not just understand in a way to, uh, you know, observe because we love things, but how to exploit, how to control, how to objectify things. Um and it's all here in this story that we're continuing to enact. It's interesting, you know, going to the story, um, a big part of transhumanism is extending the human lifespan. Um, we watched a lot of interviews, a lot of videos um, with transhumanists, and that's one of the first things they'll go to is, what's transhumanism about? It's about using technology to expand the human lifespan. And it's interesting to think back at the story of Gilgamesh, you know, that he's looking for the elixir of life, that back then overpopulation isn't really a thing. It's hard to have a conversation about a longer lifespan now and just ignore completely um, the effects of overpopulation because as we're having more children, as the human species is spreading and growing, if we have people living, let's say, instead of uh, average, I don't know what the average is, 80 years, let's say 200 years, that's going to be a lot more people on the planet. It's like people who uh, won't relinquish their turn. They've taken their turn and they won't get out of line. <laughs> and it's just like if you had like an amusement park or something, you know, like somebody's got to get off the roller coaster before somebody else can get on. Otherwise, you got people just hanging off the sides and it's really dangerous. The whole damn thing's going to fall apart. Um, so transhumanist ideas evolved further, um, especially in the 14th and the beginning of the 15th centuries. Um, This was, and correct me if I'm wrong, Teresa, this was the Age of Enlightenment? 
It must have been around there. I think maybe the 1500s. So that would be the 16th century, but yeah. So historically in Europe, we're coming to a close of what we've uh, been taught to call the Dark Ages. Um, This was a time when religion um, really held a lot of sway. Um, There was a lot of oppression, a lot of abuse. Um, And I suspect a lot of this is propaganda as well. I'm sure these things happened, but I bet there was a lot of like just simple living too. There was uh, things that just don't pop up in our history because it doesn't feed the narrative that we want now. I mean, even the names, the Dark Ages. And, and the Enlightenment. The Age of Enlightenment. And what do we mean by Enlightenment? We certainly don't mean that everybody started meditating and doing yoga. We mean science. Mm-hmm. The Great Enlightenment. That's when the, as uh, one of the podcasts we listened to, the woman on there, the scales fell from our eyes. We began to see things clearly. Um And during this time, there was a push to educate people, including women. Um, You know, it was a very uh, egalitarian, um, just everybody, you know, regardless of class, regardless of sex, um, to speak and write scientifically. In other words, it was a period as well as of uh, scientific exploration, scientific learning, um, of indoctrination. Mm. Let's get us to see the world through the scientific lens. We've been so indoctrinated at this point, and I've had conversations with people over science, and uh, most people you talk to, it's hard for them to imagine that there is another lens. Science is the truth, capital letters. It's the only correct way to see the world. A lot of this traces back to the the Enlightenment, um, the 14th and 15th centuries, as we're, because if we're speaking and writing scientifically, we're of course thinking scientifically. Transhumanist ideas were being explored by Rene Descartes. Did I say that right? Descartes? I don't know. I always struggle with that name. <laughs> you always correct me. <laughs> um, in the 1600s. And I believe this was the guy that's the, this is the I think, therefore I am guy. So he began to explore ideas, you know, keep in mind this kind of scientific foundation he's beginning to come from of what are we? What makes a human a human? What is... I don't know, you might say unnecessary, what is foundational, what can be changed? These are very important questions that the transhumanists began to explore and ask. In 1793, William Godwin wrote St. Leon, and this sounds like a really interesting book. I want to get a hold of it sometime and read it. But this book in uh, 1793 explored earthly immortality. And it may have inspired his daughter, Mary Shelley's book, Frankenstein, or the Modern Prometheus, written in 1818. Now, this is a science fiction slash horror book, and it kind of set the, uh, what would I say, set the precedent for books in the future to kind of carry a warning tone. Like when you watch movies now, you know, and there's AI that takes over the planet, or some new scientific uh thing that happens. It's usually told as a warning tale. Now, Hollywood being the clever uh, propagandists they are, even though it's a warning tale, like we just watched, you know, to kind of get a, get us in the mood for this topic, we watched um, Terminator. Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines. <laughs> and it was interesting that there's this warning tale, you know, AI turned on them, you know, human hubris, all the elements of, of Frankenstein. Yet it's told in such an exciting way that you almost feel like you kind of want it to happen because 
maybe you've got this boring life and, you know, I mean, it's all right, but you're getting tired of watching internet porn and all the stuff you just pass your time with. Man, but when the machines rise, then you're going to be John Connor. You're going to be this badass. The world's going to be full of, like, Daryl from The Walking Dead. We're all going to find our inner warrior and we're going to fight the machines. <laughs> and it's it's convenient because it's inevitable. Yeah. No matter what they do, that technological singularity is going to happen. And I think kind of an undercurrent of these things is um, that we're so freaking bored, you know, that this this life we've created is just so empty and boring for us that even something catastrophic like machines taking over and shooting lasers at us, it's kind of exciting. <laughs> you know, we want to watch that. We want to kind of like put ourselves in this fantasy world. Um, you could just move to Syria. Um, so one thing that I'm, um, kind of, you know, I have a beef with that interpretation is I don't think Frankenstein was just a warning tale about machines or science or technology. I think the rest of that title gets left off a lot, which is, or the modern Prometheus. Now, do you remember who Prometheus was, Teresa? I thought it was something about having to do with the sun like the flying up to get the sun's light or something. Yeah, I don't remember much about the story either, but it's it's a story about human hubris, ambition, a man trying to be a god. He's trying to reach the sun where only the gods reside, and he pays a price for that. I think it's like, I don't know if he comes up with like invent some wings or something, but they catch on fire and he falls back to earth. So it's a story about man overstepping his bounds. And Mm. it brings up a lot of interesting questions that are very important to where we are now. Do we have bounds? Are there lines that we shouldn't cross? If we can cross them, does it mean that like we're kind of, it's our manifest destiny to cross them? Mm. Um, Is there a line where we cross over and start playing God? And if there is, have we already crossed it? I mean, you consider things like Modern medicine, you know, extending the human lifespan, things like that. These are uh, really good questions. In, let's see. And Teresa wrote a little note on this, and she wrote, we're trying to be what we think God is, not Buddha. And I think that's an important distinction. You know, in the, our Western culture, we have this idea of God as like a paternal figure, a, you know, a controller, a disher out of rewards and punishments. And that's how we see God. It's not necessarily how the universe works, but that's kind of the God that we've held up for our civilization that kind of reflects our values back to us. This is very different from Buddha. And we, you might say, we're actually more like the Buddha now. We are, uh, you know, it's about overcoming struggles and accomplishments. It's about transcending these things. It's about inner growth, personal growth, not not changing the external world. Right. Like that's what life, the essence of life. That's what life is about: is experiencing and learning. Mm-hmm. So if you're just like setting yourself up for what you consider to be the perfect situation how what's what's the point of life yeah yeah this whole um kind of scientific impetus to 
destroy the struggle, you know, like Gilgamesh again, you know, destroy the foe, cut down the forest so we can live like have our, our city and have all the stuff we want. It, it begs the question, what is the, what is the uh, purpose of the struggle? Is it just, as in Gilgamesh, a, a creature, a spirit, a monster to be vanquished? And if only we could figure it out, we would vanquish the monster. There'd be no more diseases. There'd be no more struggle. There'd be no more hardship. Um, one of the things I think of is people growing up poor. You know, a lot of people, when they grow up poor, they say that's when they learned really valuable lessons. They learned how to do things. And they say, you know, look at the rich people. Look at the people who grow up without, you know, with a silver spoon in their mouth. They're spoiled. They, they don't learn deep lessons. Um, they get uh, maybe neurotic. What's the... Yeah, I was just thinking, like, they're uh, often delve into like deviant behaviors or like try to play it on both ends, like have, uh, all sorts of things that aren't necessarily good to society, but then they're philanthropists because they have so much money. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't want to derail your thought here, but it just occurred to me that writing arguably, but is a technology. And so really the only records that we have are from people who are okay with the technology of writing. We don't have really the oral traditions and stories, just even, not even stories, but just the goings-on of life from people who weren't interested in technology. We only have the records and opinions and ideas of people who are okay with that. Yeah, that's a really interesting thought because uh, we explored this a little bit in Leaf Stories and Singing Stones about the... uh the place that literature has had in our lives in this culture. Before literature, we were all part of oral traditions. We passed on our stories and our cultures through uh, telling people, you know, face-to-face, directly. And Plato actually writes about this. Um, there's some, I think it's an Egyptian story about a king who has somehow pleased the gods, and the gods want to give him a gift, and it's the gift of literacy. And the king is deciding whether he wants to accept the gift. You might think from our standpoint, literacy is just a pure good. Why would he not? But the king's considering such ideas like, what happens to the people when they write things down? Do their memories become weaker? Because before that, they had to depend on their memories. Now we just put it in a book. And, uh, you know, like now there's this word memory hole. We can just forget about things that happened like just a year ago, you know, and just throw it down the memory hole. Um, what, voting was like a rigged election and it didn't help improve the world? Four years later, we just forget it and do it all again. <laughs> Memory hole. Um, also, he was saying that what if learning doesn't go as deep anymore? Because now if you have to say it yourself, you've really learned it. It's yours. But if you start writing it down, these ideas become further removed from us. They might spur your mind to think, but what happens often is that we regurgitate others' ideas. It steals the essence of life away. It steals the experience and the learning. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I've thought a lot about how uh, what uh, that technology, what influence that has had on us, but it is an interesting idea to consider. I'm not sure I thought about it in those terms, that the only record we have are the people who accepted it. You might say, in a way, the transhumanists of their time, Mm -hmm. because transhumanists believe in using technology to alter humanity, 
you could say literacy was indeed that. It uh, altered our memory. Mm -hmm. I can't remember a whole library's worth of stuff, but now I can just go to this building. Well, libraries are becoming obsolete. (laughs) Now I can just pull out my little computer, you know, if I have a smartphone, and have all the supposed knowledge that doesn't go deep, but we can access it. This is, we've already kind of bought into that paradigm. In 1923, and as you can imagine, you know, we were talking about Frankenstein, uh, late 1700s, early 1800s. Industrial Revolution really gets, you know, kicks up then. We have all the machines. They're getting built faster. There's people that resist them. Class hierarchy is just blowing up. There's revolts in the late 1800s all over the United States as a small minority of people exploit the machines, use them to get inordinately wealthy, which, uh, depending on your views, you might say, well, they have a right. They had the idea and everything. But underneath that, I would ask the question, what does it say about people who are greedy enough to want that, to want so much more than their their people around them? I mean, we all exist in some kind of community. Well, not Teresa and I so much, <laughs> but unless you're a nomad, you know, there's a community around you. What does it say when you're happy to have so much and you don't really care about the community? You don't care if they if they see you as the, a greedy bastard that's just happy to have that much. This was really getting amped up in the late 1800s. Um, due in large part, or exacerbated, I would say, from the Industrial Revolution. Um, Here's the rise of the machines. Um, Pollution, you know, like just the the devastation we were already through our philosophy and our ambition um, wreaking on the world. Again, everything's getting kicked up, late 1800s. In 1923, J.B.S. Haldine was one of the first proponents of the fundamental ideas of transhumanism, advancing ideas of eugenics, ectogenesis, which is creating and sustaining life in artificial environments, and the application of genetics to improve human life and intelligence. Um, Six years later, by 1929, he was talking about bionic body parts and enhancements. Keep in mind, this is the 20s. Um, Teresa read an article about this guy, and uh, I was convinced it was Captain Kangaroo when I saw the picture. Uh, (laughs) Apparently it was not. We actually bet on it because I was so sure, like, no, I am shocked that Captain Kangaroo did all this shit. (laughs) But the guy looks so much like Captain Kangaroo, you should check him out on Wikipedia. And not to mention, he was friends with the Huxley brothers, Aldous and Julian, who I'm sure we'll talk about uh, at some point. But they were Aldous Huxley of Brave New World fame. Yeah. And um, Julian Huxley, who ended up being a transhumanist himself. Yeah. And we're getting into some, like, some territory, you know, in 1923 when he talks about the application of genetics to improve human life and intelligence. I feel like um, it's not the beginning of ignoring certain questions and making certain assumptions, but... It's definitely a legacy that we still carry. For instance, intelligence. I think there are many kinds of intelligence. A bee has a certain kind of intelligence. Um, Let's just take it to humans. You know, you might see this, like, you know, old Southern guy that, hell, can't read. But he's the guy you go to to work on your car. People have different kinds of intelligence. So 
there starts to be this bias here, you know, when he says using genetics to improve intelligence. He's not tr- talking about making more people like the uh, the hillbilly who knows how to work on cars or the the tracker who like knows how to go in the woods and you know observes a lot of things. Um, he means only one kind of what I would call a dubious intelligence to select for. And I say dubious because this intelligence he's talking about, I assume he's talking about what the transhumanists are all about, Um, scientists, people that invent things, people who make new chemicals. Um, And when I look at the track record of people with this type of intelligence, it's not that impressive. Um, I'd say so many of our problems stem from people with this kind of intelligence. They have that kind of intelligence that pushes our technology forward, but they don't have the kind of intelligence that asks certain questions that might actually cause us to slow down, maybe even abandon a path that doesn't work altogether. They're not selecting for that. He's not talking about doing that with genetics. Hmm. Um, And, you know, something that came up, and I knew we were going to find this when we started studying transhumanists, I was thinking... You know, I, I've read a lot on Buddhism, and I really have a, uh, you know, a big place in my heart for Buddhist philosophy. And I was like, I bet somebody is interpreting this, trying to interpret interpret it through a Buddhist lens. Um, this kind of like no self, um, what is a self, what is a human? And sure enough, we ran into transhumanist Buddhists. <laughs> so I want to say right here, and I'm kind of sticking this awkwardly here in our timeline, but... Um, this feels like an inverted dark side of Buddhism to me. Buddha taught that disease, aging, and death, um, three of the four passing sites that led him to renounce the kingdom and, and start walking the path that led to his uh, awakening, the real enlightenment, um, they weren't things to be conquered. He had no desire to eradicate disease, aging, or death from the earth. He believed these were the prices you paid for having a human body, which was a gift. It was something to not be solely attached to, not because there's anything wrong with the human body, but because you are so much more. To celebrate the human body, but also all the other things you are as well, the air, the water, the trees, the wholeness of the universe. So... It was right to pay this fee to have this mortal body. It was not only right, but it was an opportunity to learn. Um, It was the doorway you had to walk through to wake up. It's not something you could just buy. So suffering or dukkha is essential for life growth in Buddhism. It's not to be destroyed. It is by understanding this dukkha, this this, uh, struggle that we're ultimately liberated. So I begin to ask, you know, right here with the beginning of this philosophy, if it's not a philosophy of slavery, masking itself as liberation. Mm. We seem to, these transhumanists seem to be trying to liberate themselves from the things I believe are actually the things necessary to free ourselves. It's not something that can be just bought or downloaded. It's not an app. There's never going to be an Enlightenment app, and if there is, it's full of shit. (laughs) Um, 
And who decides what is a biological limitation? You know, with, uh, what's this guy's name? J.B.S. Haldane. J.B.S. Haldane. He's beginning to really promote this idea of, like, let's use science. Let's use, use this cutting-edge technology so we're not biologically limited. You know that um, that thing that you said where they were creating and sustaining life in artificial environments? It, that meant, like, test tube babies. Yeah, I was kind of curious. I wasn't clear on what he meant by that. I didn't know if he meant, like... That was the beginning of the idea of terraforming space, or, <laughs> but that's what you read. It was it was about like test tube babies. Yeah, I believe so. And that article on Wikipedia on him was uh, it, he's a fairly interesting guy, even though he's you know a scientist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was an interesting guy. He like he moved to India and was like interested in becoming a, a Hindu, which I don't know how you do that as a white guy. But yeah, he was a he was a very eclectic, uh, eccentric man. Yeah, he sounds like the kind of guy, if you met him, even though I wouldn't agree with his philosophy, you'd kind of like. And he kind of looks like Captain Kangaroo. He looks so. He looks like Captain Kangaroo's badass brother that got all the ladies. <laughs> um, in Buddhism, Buddha tells this story, the short story of the, the second arrow. He says, having a human body, um, you know, there are elements of suffering, namely disease, aging, death, things like that, that are, you might say, are kind of like getting shot with an arrow. They're not something that you're going to enjoy. That's a price you pay. Um, it's There's nothing wrong with that. It's not to be transcended. It is part of life. But he says what we suffer from the most is the second arrow. Um, when we start feeling like it shouldn't be, uh, I shouldn't have this disease, um, aging, oh my God, what's gone wrong? Is this because like I've done something wrong? Did I not take care of my body enough? Oh, it's, it's getting wrinkly. Like, oh, I knew I should have eaten that other thing. And, you know, there is an element of responsibility of how we shape our world, but these things are part of living. It's meant to go away. Uh, we're not meant to be in complete control. And he says that second arrow, which is sort of like the expectation that things should be not as they are does not reflect reality, and we suffer the most from that. In other words, God, I'm trying to think of a good example. Um, in other words, you get cancer. Cancer sucks. You know, there's. it's not saying that there's a way to just, like, you know, be joyful about it, although I guess there is a way to be joyful about it, maybe. But the real thing that we, we, we kill ourselves with is it shouldn't have happened. Something has gone wrong. Um, or even something a little less, like you break up with your girlfriend. Um, maybe you had a beautiful three-year relationship. Nothing said that you were supposed to be together for your entire life, and yet you might condemn the entire relationship. Those beautiful three years don't seem beautiful anymore, but only because of your expectation that it should have gone longer. Nothing in reality said it should have gone longer, except your false expectation. Um Let's see. Boy, the distractions. <laughs> um, and, you know, if we start augmenting people, once the majority of people are artificially augmented, um, then imagine a world like right now, we might see, say biological limitation, uh, maybe a guy in a wheelchair, maybe a guy with... Uh, you know, that needs glasses, that doesn't have good eyesight. It's a biological limitation, so let's use technological enhancements to bring him up to what we assume is the, the top, the healthy, good-looking, happy person. 
But now let's imagine a world where people are getting these uh, enhancements, these augmentations, and now we have bionic people. They can think super quick. Their mind is uh, connected to the internet. Anything the inner, any information the internet has access to, this person's mind has access to. They've got uh, bodies that last 200 years. Uh, they're stronger. Now this person is perfectly healthy. Nothing wrong with them. By contrast, they feel like they have a biological limitation. Um, it's a dark path. It's a never-ending path of discontent. It's always in contrast to somebody else. Poor people. If everybody you know or have heard about is living the way you do, you don't feel poor. It's only by contrast when somebody comes in and starts being right beside you and living in a certain way that by contrast you feel poor. When we start living in this way of like contrast, it's a really dark path. When do you ever get good looking enough? When do you ever get healthy enough? When do you ever live long enough? I only live a thousand years. This guy over here lives 2,000. I have a biological limitation. So those are some of my problems right away with this uh, this dawning philosophy here. And weren't you saying like it's inherent? I don't know if it was in another podcast or just in one of our conversations um, that like technology, it's inherent that it's not going to be good enough next year or even, you know, in a couple weeks there's going to be something else, and it's just breeding discontent. Yeah, I believe, and I said that in the Unibomb episode, um, I do believe that technology is the manifestation of discontent itself. Um, you know, people say, oh, technology, that's also a hand drill to start a fire. But I would argue there's a whole different flavor to a hand drill. People who use a hand drill have no expectation that the hand drill is going to have to improve anytime soon or ever. You know, sometimes somebody has a powerful dream, a vision, and things do sometimes change, but it's not because there's anything wrong with the existing technology. There's a contentment with that. Hmm. Our technology needs to change. If you don't have an upgrade next year, something is not offered better, it's considered a failure. That is discontent. I can't think of another word for it. Wow, maybe You're not that's... content because next year, this thing that you had the cutting edge thing, now you have the second uh, rate thing. <laughs> the same damn thing. It brought you all kinds of joy when it came out of the box. And now because people have a better thing, you haven't upgraded. Discontent. Maybe we've just stumbled upon the difference between things that are considered pre-science and science. If you're content with it, it's pre-science. <laughs> it mm, works. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's an interesting idea. I want to like, uh, uh, chew on that a little bit sometime. Um, <laughs> In 1930, oh God, what a name, Faradwin M. Esfandiari was born. That sounds good. I think I got it as close to right as I ever have. Yeah. Um, now, this guy became a outspoken transhumanist, um, pioneer, and a professor. Um, he changed his name to FM-2030. I guess he'd say FM-2030? Yeah is what he would uh, call himself. Uh, we saw an interview with uh, Larry King, and uh, he said Larry King could just call him FM. And Larry King, being the swaggering, sarcastic bastard he is, is like, oh, I'll just call you F. Obviously, it was. Uh, he seemed really condescending. <laughs> um, well, FM 2030 wrote, Upswingers. Upwingers. Up, upwingers, yeah. <laughs> upwingers, a futurist manifesto. Um, among other books. I feel like one of the other books was uh, Are You a Transhumanist? Yes. Yeah. So this guy was a real pioneer. He really started getting this idea um, 
out there. In an interview with Larry King that we just mentioned, um, FM said that the FM stood for future model and that if you were alive in the year 2030, there's a good chance you'd be able to be immortal. He had really high, far-reaching hopes for the power of technology. And again, all that stuff we said about immortality and discontent, you know, my concerns there. He started a school called the New School. And uh, in your research, Teresa, did you run into anything about the New School? Uh, well, there's there are two different schools called the New School, uh, funny enough. But the one that he started was in UCLA in Los Angeles, which Los Angeles, which um, doesn't surprise me at all because Los Angeles seems to be a place for weird people that are narcissists. Oh, well, it definitely uh, becomes the hub of uh, transhumanism. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, FM really promoted transhumanism, uh, this, this way of being in the world as a possible solution for violence and social problems. Um, I would ask, can a solution that is sold to us or imposed on us by a government or by a corporation be a lasting, meaningful, real solution? Again, you know, I'm, I, I lean more towards that Buddhist way of thinking that it's through overcoming the problems mm. that we have real solutions, real liberation. Um, by trying to avoid them and skirt around them, for, first of all, I don't think it'll ever work. I don't think we will ever be able to just uh, punch buttons and get rid of these things. If it does, I think we're going to find ourselves in a greater nightmare than we ever imagined before. I don't think that that has anything to do with the human experience or just uh, the life experience itself. Adversity is part of it. It's There's nothing wrong with that other than your expectation that it shouldn't be. Um, in... 1957, Aldous Huxley's brother, Julian Huxley, coined the term transhumanism in an article. So this is the first time that they're starting to use the word transhumanism, 1957, which agreed with Thomas Hobbes' description of human life as nasty, brutish, and short. It's really interesting that Aldous Huxley is writing Brave New World, <laughs> you know, that seems to be a warning tale about this kind of uh, uh, futuristic... Um, embrace of all the, the hedonistic pleasures of technology, while Julian, on the other hand, is, uh, you know, starting to promote this transhumanism and, and coining the, the term. Um, and this Thomas Hobbes quote about human life being nasty, brutish, and short. Do you, when was Thomas Hobbes alive? Shit. I knew I should have written more stuff down about Thomas Hobbes. Uh, I'm going to say, mm, okay, listeners, if I'm wrong, you write in and tell me. I'm going to say in the 1600s, uh, maybe like the latter part of the 1600s. I could be wrong about that. Sounds right. He, he lived at a time that it was like, you know, there was a... <laughs> as if this, I uh, was about to give a description that fits our time too, that there was a lot of social problems, a lot of pollution. Um, you know, I feel like he, he didn't have the perspective to recognize that it was the way we're living that was making life nasty, brutish, and short, um, rather than just being born a human that's intrinsically nasty, brutish, and short. Um, I don't feel like people from other cultures would necessarily agree with that description. Hell, I'm in that culture, and, well, depending on what day you get me, I might agree with that, but some days I wouldn't. I think he lived to be 91, so I don't know 
like what kind of short life he was looking at. Although I think he was the one that his mom died in childbirth or like died fairly young when he yeah. was like in his 20s or something. So maybe he was, you know, jaded from that. And when you get infected with that ambition and greed, it's never long enough. Um, <laughs> that's what she said. Oh, um, in 1960, as these uh, transhumanist ideas are beginning to pick up more momentum, three years after the term transhumanism was coined, in 1960, Japanese met- metabolist Noboru Kawazo wrote in his manifesto, and I'm quoting here, After several decades with the rapid progress of communication technology, everyone will have a brainwave receiver in his ear, which conveys directly and exactly what other people think about him and vice versa. (laughs) What I think will be known by all the people. There is no more individual consciousness, only the will of mankind as a whole. Sounds like Facebook. It does sound like Facebook. Is there anything else that, like, that description makes you think of in uh, pop culture? Hmm. Fiction? What he thinks everyone will know. There's only the one... Yeah. Oh. Well. Are you talking about 1984? No. Uh, <laughs> I guess there's a lot of things. <laughs> we are Borg. You oh, will be assimilated. Oh, 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 oh. Resistance is futile. You gotta warm me up before you start start talking about Star Trek. Oh, that's also what she said. <laughs> I was like, man, she's a freak. <laughs> so, yeah. But and, I already knew that. <laughs> Um, damn, you derailed me again. Uh, let's see. Oh, yeah. Japanese. So, you know, to, I think to most of us, like, if you're a Western listener, listener especially, um, that sounds horrible. Who wants everybody to know what you're thinking? Um, it's, it's such a strange thing to hold up as almost like an aspirational, like, one day, you know? And he's talking about these receivers in your ear. It also makes me think of, uh, Bluetooth. Yeah. You know? And... God, if you've got Bluetooth and a smartphone access to the internet, basically we're you're already about there. there. Yeah. yeah, it's just not maybe exactly the way he pictured it, but it's pretty damn close in 1960. And keep in mind, you know, we kind of we're glossing over so many things. You know, like World War II, chemicals and uh, technology really picked up there. You know, fueled by our uh, military, by our wars, by our desire to defend ourselves and to uh, control others. Um, In the 50s, you know, we've got, and while Julian Huxley is coining the term transhumanism, we've got the golden age. People are getting television sets in their houses, refrigerators. Oh, I said it right. Um, (laughs) You know, it's a a really like optimistic time of like people are, are thinking about the Jetsons and flying cars and everything. Rachel Carson hasn't sounded the alarm about what the bad side of chemicals yet. It's just better living through more chemicals. Um, but I wonder if part of this is cultural. You know, I think of him like he's in Japan. Mm-hmm. And in the East, like in Japan and China, I'm, you know, I've never lived there. I've, uh, you know, I've known people that are from there. But my impression is that it's a lot more, what would I say, civic minded? Like, it's a little more attractive to think of all your thoughts combined with everyone else's rather than kind of this more uh, individualistic way of thinking that we're taught more in the West where we're like, I don't want to. Yeah, I mean, it's like two extremes. Well, and from my very um, large place of ignorance, yeah, that seems right. And yet I can't ever, like, 
I don't think I could ever fully understand it, but there is a wisdom within that. You know, like there's one thing to be a wisdom within within having more of a, a civic minded existence. Not oh, yeah. to say that you're Borg, not to say that everything is the same, but it lends itself it works for for people. Yeah, I didn't mean to imply that one was better than yeah. the other. I actually think, in my own opinion, that the East and the West have gone to two extremes, and I'm not really uh, feeling like either one hits the mark. But our individualism in the West, I think, too often translates into greediness. That's why we can so easily give ourselves over to, uh, you know, kind of a capitalist or even a socialist, you know, because the capitalist way of thinking is I can benefit and screw everybody else. The socialist way of thinking is that my rugged individuality is right and should be imposed on everybody else. Either way, it's kind of two different, I feel like, dark sides of uh, individualism. And the other way, you know, just to kind of give up yourself completely, uh, it sounds good in a tribal way, but when you start getting a whole empire, you know, like China... I don't think it translates well. Um, I think the individual kind of gets oppressed and lost in that. And I definitely don't think technology becoming a way to increase anything ever, ever helps us. Um, So if we're uh, increasing that through technology, like I said, I think that's the Borg. I think that's kind of a dark path. It's just, it's... I don't know. It's not our human experience, and I feel like it's not meant to be, and I feel like it won't serve us. It's not serving us. We're closer to that, as we just pointed out, than we were when he wrote that in 1960. What are the suicide rates again? <laughs> what are the levels of depression and anxiety, alienation, loneliness? How's it serving us? <clears throat> in, let's see. Oh, wrong page. Um, in 1965... British cryptologist first proposed the technological oh British cryptologist IJ Good first proposed the technological singularity he wrote let an ultra intelligent machine be defined as a machine that can far surpass all the intellectual activities of any man however clever Since the design of machines is one of these intellectual activities, an ultra-intelligent machine could design even better machines. There would then unquestionably be an intelligence explosion, and the intelligence of man would be left far behind. (laughs) Thus, the first ultra-intelligent machine is the last invention that man need ever make. Now, what he's describing here will later be called the technological singularity, and it is one of the tenets of transhumanism. If you're a transhumanist, um, or I don't want to speak for all transhumanists, but most transhumanists believe that AI, a specific AI that overshadows all other AI that they call the technological singularity, is coming soon, and it's inevitable. I agree with this. On the path that we're walking, we should be prepared for that. And people that are of the transhumanist mindset believe that we need to be prepared for that. We need to recognize this is, in fact, going to happen. And we need to ensure that this benefits humanity. Um, Oh, can I finish the quote? Oh, please. So there's more, a little bit more to that quote from I.J. Good, who, by the way, worked with Alan Turing in cryptology. 
Yeah, and Alan Turing was one of the, uh, what, the forefathers of the computer? Mm-hmm. So I.J. Good, <coughs> after he said that's like the the last invention that man need ever make, referring to that ultra-intelligent machine, he said, provided that the machine is docile enough to tell us how to keep it under control. <laughs> It is curious that this point is made so seldom outside of science fiction. And then this is the most creepiest part of the quote. It is sometimes worthwhile to take science fiction seriously. Why do you think that's creepy? I don't know. It's like he's a really big nerd, this I.J. Good, And it just seems like Revenge of the Nerds. With all this transhumanist stuff. <laughs> I don't necessarily get that from that quote. I, Because uh, I agree with him on that. Unless you're calling me a big nerd. But I think it is worthwhile to take science fiction seriously. Because it is warning us. Mm-hmm. And predicting a whole lot of what's going to happen. I don't think we should model ourselves on the science fiction. But uh, yeah. there. I, I think it's um, undebatable that it behooves us to take it seriously because so much of what it has predicted has come to pass. Yeah, and I'm sure you're going to say this, and I don't want to, you know, burst your bubble. Burst it. Okay, well, I'm just reflecting on the last, uh, whatever, like 40, 50 minutes of this. Um, We've gone from the beginning, our origins of our culture and the epic of Gilgamesh, all the way up to... We've covered a lot of ground. 1965, and this is not only happening, it's accelerating, and it's going to happen. It is a sure thing, um, because technology is kind of willing itself into this. Oh, accelerating? You just wait, folks. Like, <laughs> we're just trying to put the pieces together. It's, it's, this is a... Like I said, we had a hard time figuring out how to tell this story. So I'm going down a timeline to kind of give you uh, origin stories, so to speak. You know, like the term transhumanism, first coined in 1957. The thought of a technological singularity, AI taking over. We're talking about Skynet here, basically. Um, 1965. These ideas have been with us for longer than you might think. Um 1979, Star Trek, the motion picture was released. And, you know, I want to bring in a little pop culture here because these ideas are beginning to more um, become a part of our cultural, our pop culture. You know, we had V'ger. If you've, if you've seen Star Trek, the motion picture, they come across this super intelligent, super powerful alien force. And um, it's on its way to Earth. And I can't remember the question it's asking, but, you know, they're like, we don't have the answer for this question. It's something like, it's an existential question, I believe, if I remember right. Like, what's my purpose or something like that? And it turns out, you know, the big reveal at the end of the movie is it was Voyager. We sent out our latest technology, you know, our intelligent design technology. And it became self-aware after uh, meeting an alien life form. Um, and part of its name got erased. So it, it just had the V G-E-R, V'ger. But again, you know, these warning tales, these tales of human hubris, 
you know, of like the unpredictability that we're starting things that we don't know where they'll go. And there's so many avenues for them to go into places that will come back to bite us in the ass. And we don't need to just fear monger. We don't need to just use our imaginations and like worry about the future. We're seeing it right now. Hell, I brought up Rachel Carson. The chemicals from World War II. Rachel Carson's like, look what's happening right now. Silent Spring. We're already seeing how likely, how often, almost uniformly, I would argue, that things that we invent when we start walking this path of enhancing the human experience come back to bite us in the ass. <laughs> um, so... In the early 1980s, the first self-described transhumanists met formerly at UCLA. So there's LA for you. Mm-hmm. Um, which became the main center of transhumanist thought. In Anna Lewis's 2019 article, The Ideology of Transhumanism, The Ethics of Transcending Our Physical Bodies, She says she finds more conservative types on the East Coast who oppose transhumanism and more liberal types on the West Coast supporting it. Supporters can't even conceive of an argument against it since it is the logical next step of where we're already headed. Um, I agree with that. At first when I read that, I was like, I had kind of a bad reaction, like what, they can't see an argument, they can't even conceive of an argument? But they're right. A transhumanist might say, Look, we're talking about using science and technology to improve the human condition, to lengthen lifespans, to um, allow us to do things that you can't do just based on your original biology. Transhumanists use technologies such as cosmetic surgery, Ritalin, Adderall, or caffeine to improve cognitive focus. (laughs) Lifestyle drugs like Viagra, Propecia, and Botox to restore aspects of youthfulness lost in maturity. How many of us, based on this description, are already halfway there? We're already transhumanists without using the terminology. If you use Viagra, um, you might say biologically, you know, a person loses that ability to maintain an erection. We're using chemicals, things outside of our bodies, to enhance our bodies already. Um, I thought caffeine was kind of an interesting thing to bring in there, you know, like if you're, you know, studying for that college exam and you're drinking coffee to improve your mental acuity, to stay awake more than your biology wants to stay awake. Um, And cell phone. Teresa's mom lives in Utah. We have talks sometimes where we get disgusted with technology and talk about like giving up the little bit of technology we're holding on to. And Teresa's like, I need to be able to talk to my mom. Now, she can't yell long, loud enough for her mom to hear her <laughs> in Utah. So even the phone, even uh, an email is a way of conveying your voice, your mind halfway across the globe, maybe entirely across the globe. This arguably, is a form of transhumanism. So even though this argument is weird, I think it's right. These medications that allow us, I mean, hell, I had my gallbladder taken out through modern medicine. Um, I benefited from transhumanism. You could argue that a lot of the things 
that our enhancements are only enhancements because of the way our culture has been changed by the very technology that we're now using as a crutch. Run that by me again. Okay. <clears throat> so, for example, it just, it just popped into my head when you were talking about your gallbladder surgery. It's not that there weren't problems with the gallbladder before this oh, time. that the transhumanist effects on our world are creating problems. Yeah. That then we feel like we need transhumanist solutions to fix. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. I think uh, in many cases, for instance, might your mom... And your dad have moved to Utah if they did not live in a transhumanist culture. Would yeah. they have been willing to completely cut ties with the rest of their family if they didn't believe they could rely on transhumanist communication to keep those ties? Right. So they kind of got us. They've got us. Yeah. They've got us coming and going. They literally. don't kind of got us. It's been happening. It's been a, a slow simmer all the way to a rapid boil, and we're in it. And if we can say that coffee is a form of transhumanism, there's literally not a human being on the face of the planet that is not a transhumanist because <laughs> that would include herbalism because coffee yeah. is plant medicine. Yeah, even the Mormons that don't, you know, they don't take uh, coffee. They have all their herbal supplements and they drink like Mormon tea that has some sort of chemical, maybe caffeine in it. Yeah, you follow this line of argument, then a Native American in the 1400s that chews up a yarrow leaf and puts it on a wound is trying to enhance his human condition um, because the wound apparently doesn't stop bleeding as easily by itself. So he's using science to stop the bleeding quicker, which transhumanists are saying that's transhumanism. I think this is dodgy wordplay. Um, I think it, it brings up a really good question because the good question is, where is the line then? What is the difference between an indigenous person chewing up a yarrow leaf to help stop bleeding and someone going through an MRE scan to see what the problem is inside their body. I agree. It's a fuzzy line and it's a damn good question. And it's really important we explore that because a lot of people, myself included, just kind of have a gut reaction like, ah, I don't like technology. But what is technology? Um, and yeah... Chris is asking me if this is a good place to stop because we knew this would be a long one. Uh, are you feeling tired? Oh, I was just thinking that might be a good like kind of cliffhanger to have people kind of pause and and consider. Well, let's get through this part. I've got. Uh, I was actually going to stop here in the early '80s because this is the first. Here we have these ideas coming together in the first formal meeting of people who are saying we are transhumanists. So I was going to use this as a platform to really get into uh, some of the philosophy. Mm. So let's see where we're at when we get through this. Okay. And yeah, there is so much to cover. We were so excited to write this stuff down. Um, um, another author says, life is good. Death is bad. Well-being is good. Suffering is bad. So he's basically asking, why wouldn't you want to help uh, reduce suffering? It's bad. Mm -hmm. Again, I think he's making a lot of assumptions there. Who says that death is bad? He just says it offhand like we all agree. I'd say we want to avoid it as long as possible. Uh, there's no reason to rush towards it. But I also, my belief is that it's necessary. Um, I believe it might even be a good transition when it comes. But it's good to be here as well. So there's no reason to rush it. 
but I'm not sure this assumption that we need to fear it or avoid it or if we can eliminate it altogether uh, makes any sense. I definitely don't agree with eliminating it altogether. Um, and damn, I was I lost my train of thought again. So yeah, the the wordplay, you know, of the transhumanist, if an indigenous person using the yarrow leaf, our example again, um, it's interesting because it kind of betrays itself. By their definition, we're all transhumanists, but if we're all transhumanists, why have the word? Why have a meeting? Why have something that seems to contrast itself with something else? Yeah. So it's, uh, I've heard the same argument and, you know, to me, science and technology are kind of the same thing. Uh, you know, the way Einstein said, there's no such thing as time and space, it's space time. I don't believe there's really a such thing as science and technology. It's science technology. <laughs> I believe people that see the world through scientific terms will throw themselves into exploiting that and building machines, chemicals, uh, using that knowledge not just to learn and commune, but to control technology. And I believe people that invent technology will need to have a scientific foundation to understand the technology and advance it. So they're the same thing. It's the same path. And I've heard people defend science in the same way, saying, well, everything is science. You build a fire, <laughs> don't you? That's science. You're a scientist. You're a tracker. You track? That's science. Oh, yeah. But science itself will talk about pre-scientific cultures. Um, it's wordplay. It's wordplay. It's something to convince you that you're already on their side. There's no point to resist. And it's meant to shut down thinking. Um, and like I said, I credit them with bringing up a very good question, which was, is where is the line? But not to get caught up in the deception. Does that make sense to you, Teresa? You got any questions about what I said? I, I can't tell if I'm making sense right now. Uh, no, I mean, we've had a lot of conversations about this, so I it seems to make sense to me. Hopefully one, it makes sense to the listeners, too. <laughs> <laughs> we if never know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and that author that said life is good, death is bad, etc. Uh, Teresa, you were sharing a story with me about your grandma choosing um, suffering over meds or air conditioning. Oh, yeah. My, my grandma, who has been gone now for, I think, 11 years or so, um, my mom would always ask her mom, like, why are you sitting here? You've got an air conditioner. Like, why don't you turn it on? It's hot. It's getting hotter um, in Ohio where she lived at. You know, you didn't used to have or need a, an air conditioner, but things are changing. And, you know, she got one, so she doesn't use it. She's just sitting there sweating and suffering. And to my grandma, um, it might not make sense because I'm saying it secondhand or thirdhand, whatever, but to my grandma, like the suffering meant something. It was kind of a, like a religious thing to her. Or I used to, I used to do this personally. Like if I had a headache, I would try not to take any sort of aspirin or an herbal remedy or anything. I would try to like suffer through it. Cause I thought, well, I guess I kind of thought like the suffering would make me stronger, you know, like if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. So I guess there's some of that in me as well. And I'm not exactly sure what to call that, but it, it reminds me of what you were talking about with the Buddha. What was your grandma's religion? She was Catholic. Yeah, I think that's something that's a common theme in what we typically call religions. And I say typically because I think of science as a type of religion, too. Hmm. But I think religions, one of the things it gives us is that it helps us make sense of our suffering, mm. to find purpose in our strife. 
And I think that, I feel like maybe it traces roots way back in racial memory that we know that, like, for instance, the body, um, if it has to come in contact with things that aren't necessarily good for it, viruses, things like that, it learns how to build up an immunity. It can become stronger. So the suffering has always had a place. You know, like if you get uh, attacked by a, I don't know, a tiger and you live, that suffering, that attack, the wounds heal, you've got the scars, those scars not only help you because now you've learned something about what to look for, the true danger, maybe how you got out of it, you've got something to share with the entire village. The suffering didn't lead you to, to wish that that never happened necessarily. It was more a way of thinking of the gods, the divine, the, the bigger thing coming through that experience to give a gift to the people. I feel like religion remembers something of that, but the religion of science, a big weakness of that, is I feel like it just pits us against these things and doesn't give us any purpose. It gives us no meaning. I think that's why with the, the most technological advancements we have now that we live in, um, we have such a lack of purpose. We're so depressed. We're so anxious. It's not enough to be entertained. What the hell are we here for? Yeah, I agree. And I have two things to say if I can remember both of them. One is that here from the religion of science, scientists study what we know as a virus. And I think we talked about this in Black Magic White Science, that viruses were actually instrumental in evolution because of mutations and, uh, I guess, um, communicating different uh, information to cells. Yeah, the question is, when the uh, government invents one as a weapon and then <laughs> claims to uh, have the solution to save you from their own invention, well, like, you know, what does that do to our well, body? Well, and just, I mean, regardless of, you know, government or anything, but if science is saying that a virus is actually responsible for the evolution of DNA, as far as I can understand it, because I don't study that shit, but then why are we trying to stop viruses? Mm -hmm. So it's contradictory. And the other thing I was just going to say that you reminded me of, I wrote this down. Um, I hope it still makes sense because I might've been high when I was thinking this, but uh, transhumanism, it's my take on it is, our problems in humanity are exacerbated by a lack of tribe, the dismantling of the family structure, and the digitization of community. So why is technology the answer? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, technology always seems to uh, deliver the problem and, um, and then come in and... and offer the answer Give usually the at an affordable price yeah and uh viruses Eventually. you know when you're talking about viruses i think of like i think the worst viruses that we've had you know you might say like you know it's good for humanity but then we have like plagues smallpox uh things like that the black death um and these also come from the technologies of the time people trying to like all these viruses come from animals from mutant animal viruses where we've, um, instead of just living a simple hunter-gatherer lifestyle, more like, you know, the Garden of Eden, the other animals on the planet, we're trying to control things. Um, 
the sun has found us. <laughs> so I feel like all these arguments uh, were being tricked into complying with an agenda that they purposefully avoid describing. And, you know, maybe next episode, we're going to try to paint a picture of this world. If we put all these ideas together, what we might be in store for. Um, I feel like they intentionally try to avoid where we're headed with all this stuff, except in exciting, you know, sci-fi, like, Positive ooh, isn't it? Ways. Yeah, and let's nerd out on this shit kind of ways. Um, but, let's see. Okay, so, in the early 80s, you know, the transhumanists met formally, and Max Moore and Tom Morrow, people hmm. really like to uh, play games with their names in the this group, says the guy named Gumby. <laughs> They founded the Extropy Institute. So that's what the transhumanists were calling themselves. Now, let me give you some of the uh, the tenets, the, uh, tra- uh, Teresa wrote, traditional values of transhumanists. This doesn't mean it applies to every single transhumanist. And like I said, depending, uh, depending on their argument, you are already a transhumanist. But it's kind of chilling how much does apply to us. Mm. Neophilia which is a strong affinity for novelty and change. Doesn't that sound like uh, most of us? Don't we want to go on vacations? Don't you want to see that place you've never been? Isn't that really uh, encouraged in our culture? Especially with consumerism. Technophilia, strong enthusiasm for new technology. Is it a rarity for somebody to want to get the new video game, the new iPad, uh, the, the, the new gadget? My dad had both of these big time. He would he was that kind of guy that like, you know, this is before everybody had a computer. But if there was some little thing that would come out in a magazine or whatever, some neat little gadget, if he could, he'd get it. He loved that kind of crap. Um, and I also find it interesting that they say strong enthusiasm, but philia. I'm not sure what that word, the etymology of that word is, but it's interesting. Like. We talk about necrophilia. It's <laughs> Pedo- not just pedophilia. <laughs> pedophilia, which isn't just an enthusiasm for dead bodies. It's a sexual uh, relationship. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, singularitarianism. This is the belief that the creation of a super intelligent technological singularity is probable in the near future, so deliberate action should be taken to ensure the singularity benefits humanity. <laughs> yeah, All right. Terminator. Yeah. Yeah, because we're making this happen. We're going full steam ahead with our full consent. Um, but we better make sure that when it happens that it's going to, like, not kill us. <laughs> Extropianism. Uh, remember, they uh, called this thing the extra, Extropy Institute. What is Extropy? Continuously improving the human condition and volunteering to test new technology. Mm. Now, one thing that I find really interesting as I'm reading this list is I'm seeing that all these agendas in our culture are kind of pushing us towards all these things. Our consumerism really, our capitalism and consumerism really pushes us into the neophilia and the technophilia. The singularitarianism, Hollywood is really getting us ready. How many fucking movies do we have that talk about AI taking over? Um, there's Skynet, there's, uh, you know, iRobot, there's The Matrix. We're all, like, if you just ask somebody on the street, hey, what do you think the odds are that AI will one day become a problem? Um, I think most people, even if they just kind of laugh, you know, like, oh, yeah, it'll probably happen. 
you know, even if they're not putting a lot of importance on it. Hollywood has primed us for that, and I'm not, we are already singularitarianism, or I mean singularitarianists. And extropianism, consider the vaccine. Oh my God, consider the pan, the pandemic. Um, you remember when the vaccine, like, they were calling it a vaccine, but they also, I, I, I feel like, wanted us to know, actually, this is experimental gene therapy. They didn't try to hide that from us. They wanted you to know this was experimental. And remember how many things, like I saw on Facebook and social media, that people were, like, lining up, like, I'll be the first one. I'll, I'll do the experimental, uh, try the experimental science. Oh, remember on NPR, they were doing, like, really nauseating interviews of people that were you know, using their bodies. They were, you know, devoting their life, what was left of it, to helping future generations or to save grandma. Yeah, they they don't miss an opportunity to make heroes out of extropians, astronauts, the first people to go to space, the first person to land on the moon. What the fuck do you need to land on the moon for? There's no practical reason for it. You might argue like, good Lord, look at all the technology and time and manpower and money spent to get this guy to walk on the moon for what? Like, other people couldn't have benefited from that, and yet, Neil Armstrong, you know, like, let's make a hero out of him. Our culture really gears us towards this extropianism, and I'm starting to wonder how much transhumanism is behind it in in, in a very non-accidental way. Um, The survival and self-preservation, human extinction... Post-humans or AI may be the successors of Homo sapiens sapiens. So, in other words, these transhumanists are looking ahead to the end of the human race. Basically, we're either going to become something else, leave behind whatever you call humanity, which is another great existential question. Post-human. Yeah, what is humanity? If you get your arm cut off and have a prosthetic arm, are you still human? If you get a fake heart, are you still human? What if your whole body's replaced, if the technology allows you to have a cyborg body, but your head's intact? Are you still human? Where does that line get crossed where you're post-human, but you're no longer something that can call itself human anymore? Um, These are the things that very much interest the transhumanist. Post-genderism. A social philosophy that seeks the voluntary elimination of gender in the human species through the application of advanced biotechnology and assisted reproductive technologies. Now, I got to tell you, when I first ran into the word transhuman, I thought it had something to do with transgender, transsexuality. And I was like, what the hell is transhumanism? That's what got me to look into it in the first place. Um, now, When you read a lot of the descriptions, it sounds like something completely different. But one of the things that I began to think, and I haven't heard anybody else make this bridge, so this is me going out on a limb here. I don't think they're so different. I believe transsexuality is the bridge. It's paving the way for disassociation with the body. Disassociation with the body. You can decide whatever gender you are. You're a boy, you can call yourself a she. You can call yourself a rainbow unicorn. Uh, Everybody has to accept that. I wondered so much, how did this weird idea, you know, black rights had to fight, fight, fight. Uh, Indian rights had to fight against the government. They're still fighting. Women's rights. All kinds of oppressed groups had to fight. Gay people had to fight. Somehow, the transsexuals came in 
And the government just immediately lined up behind these people, a small minority of people. And now men can compete in women's sports, things that just don't make any sense. And it's like, how did they get such powerful backing? What the fuck is this? Where is it coming from? Well, you forgot one of the other um, traditional uh, tenets of transhumanists is you have to have a lot of money. Why do you say that? Well, because um, many of the people that consider themselves transhumanists that we've studied and read about are millionaires, billionaires. There's a lot of money backing this, yeah, especially suppose, in artificial intelligence. And I suppose you can't stay on the cutting edge of technology without having money. I mean, I can't go out right now and buy the, the latest computer. can't afford it. Not that I would want to. But I think this is intentional. I think the people... The, the small minority of people that were, in fact, real transsexuals that wanted a sex change, for instance, I think they got exploited. I think this was an opportunity that the transhuman movement saw. Let's get behind these people. Let's turn it into a human rights issue. You have the human right to be post-gender. They don't use the word so much, but that's what we're talking about. And if you can disassociate somebody with their body... I feel like that was the last big obstacle. As I said, we were already extropians. We were already neophiles, technophiles. We were already singularitarians. Um, But we weren't post-genders yet. I feel like that was the missing block. Let's get us to completely disassociate with our body. And by disassociating with our body, pushes us into postmodernism, which oddly, uh, transhumanism often says it pits itself against. I don't see it. I see the same thing. A complete abandonment. Reality is whatever you want it to be. Virtual reality. I think there's a link here. I think that's the big agenda behind transsexuality. They don't care if a man wants to call himself a woman, the powers that be. There's no reason to back all this and make such a big uproar about the small minority of people when still Indians, for instance, are left out in the cold, in trailers, on reservations. Why this issue? I think this is it. This is why. Because it's not about transsexuality or transgender. It's about what happens next. Mm -hmm. If we can get the entire world, the entire culture to buy in to this completely to the point where a man can say he's a woman when he's convicted of rape and be put in a women's prison and rape women within that prison, which has happened. Illinois, Washington, the UK uh, are examples that I've found. I'm sure it's much more widespread than that. If we can that completely buy into this, then we're ready for transhumanism. They can take us wherever they want us to go. You got any thoughts on that before I leave that? That was kind of my platform of uh, the transhumanist philosophy. No, I really... um... We've been talking about this for the past week, and it is just, like we said at the beginning, sobering um, to realize that this is not something that you can choose to be at this point. We're in it. We are transhumans. And, uh, yeah, I, I will be excited to share some more in the next installment. Yeah, and just to give you some pop cultural uh 
um, background when we're, you know, talking about the early 80s. In 1982, Scooter Computer and Mr. Chips, uh, Schoolhouse Rock came out. There were four of them. I actually got a DVD of all the Schoolhouse Rock, you know, kind of a nostalgic thing. This was many years ago. And um, there were four of them, and at least one of them is creepy as hell. Like, every time I watch these Scooter Computer and Mr. Chips, it's this little kid with a backwards-facing ball cap and a skateboard, you know, kind of the cool kid of 1982. And he's got this computer that's like on a... You remember how the teacher used to bring in a monitor and it was on like those four legs with wheels? Oh, yeah. So that's basically Mr. Chips. And he's got like a, you know... Remember how like the old computers, all the lights were green? All the like letters and everything the numbers were oh, yeah. green yeah like a monochrome screen so it Ms. was black and green mr chips has a face on that monitor that's green and man one of those like they're very they're short things look them up <laughs> and you'll probably know which one i'm talking about when you hit it but one of them just the song the pacing of it it feels creepy as hell to me Every time I watch that, I imagine, like, society completely have fallen apart, all of our mistakes caught up with us, and somebody finding some old monitor covered with dust with a cracked screen and watching that and just thinking sadly to themselves, like, oh, my God, they had no idea. (laughs) And also, that was 1982. In 1983, we have Inspector Gadget. You remember Penny's computer book? Man, I thought that was the neatest fucking thing. She just opened up that computer book and get any information she wanted, leaf through it, you know, could do all this stuff. And I'm looking at this iPad right now that we're talking into at this very moment, and it just soars past Penny's computer book. I never thought I'd have the computer book. And as a little kid, I thought, like, wow, that would be the coolest thing in the world. And now that I have this iPad, it's like, we use it, but does it in itself make us happier? Um the promotion was really kicking up in the, the early 80s. The computer is your friend. Scooter Computer and Mr. Chips. Wouldn't it be cool to access this? And I remember so other commercial, so many other commercials back then. And also, nerds. Mm. We were thinking about naming this episode at first, Kill the Nerds. We thought that might uh, run into censorship right away. <laughs> but nerds remember revenge of the nerds suddenly nerds were like the underdog like oh man nerds are actually really good people and when i think back of revenge of the nerds remember how there was a gay black guy remember booger what the fuck was he doing with the nerds nerds came to mean not just geeky nerdy people but cleverly anybody who feels like an outcast think about what that paved the way for mm. Anybody who feels like they don't fit in with a culture that completely is becoming harder and harder to fit in with as it spins off the rails and goes crazy, well, now you become sympathetic to the nerds. Man, those fucking nerds, I'll tell you, the revenge of the nerds is happening right now. This is the revenge of the nerds. These are people that were damaged by society that had a specific kind of intelligence that were cut off, that typically like had allergies that didn't go outside much, that only they they fell in love with anything that gave them escape from this world of bullying, of feeling like an outcast, of not being able to find romantic love like all the jocks and all the cool kids. And I feel like these things, these, these problems in our culture warped. They became sicknesses. And so you've got a group of people that identify as nerds that fe- they feel oppressed. Anybody who feels bullied feels vindicated to strike out against whom they perceive as the bully. Victimization is a dangerous fucking thing. Um, 
it allows all kinds of stuff. The Germans thought they were the victims of the Jews. Everything you hear about World War II was the Germans feeling like they had gotten bullied and fucked over by the rich Jews. That's what happens when you retaliate, when you feel like you were the victim. Anything goes. And, uh, yeah, now they're just paving the way, and I feel like we're being led by very intelligent, limited, short-sighted, psychotic people into a fictional universe that we will not reach, even if we could reach, would be a very dark place. We'd have to trade our souls for it. And on the way there, we're going to do so much damage. So I guess, yeah, I guess we'll just end the episode there. We've got so much we want to cover. And uh, yeah, if any of this interests you, come on back next time. We only made it to the early 80s. Wait till we get to the 2000s. My (laughs) God, this shit picks up. You won't believe where we are now. (laughs) All right. Let's see. For our listener write-in, we're fighting sun and wind. I've got Carrie from Middlebury, Vermont. And she wrote this quite a while back, like I think during season three or four. She wrote... Connectivity is something of an issue where I am, but I managed to listen to the first part. She's talking about homeless versus houseless. Then bits of it after that. I so appreciate the wisdom and articulateness of both of you. Um, I appreciate that, Carrie. Um, I'd like to think we shake the tree hard enough. We shake out a little wisdom and uh, sometimes maybe are articulate when we're not mispronouncing words and stuff like that. But... uh, (laughs) You know, and the reason why that one jumped out at me when I'm looking through our listener write-ins is connectivity is something of an issue. Just wait, Carrie. We'll, uh, <laughs> we're going to be probably broadcasting right in your head. Well, no, we won't. We will no doubt be censored, but some soothing voice telling you it's all right. It's all right. <laughs> we'll be right there in your ear soon enough. So you just wait. That connectivity is getting fixed right now. Um... Wind! So, um, we have a Facebook page found at Escaping Society. We have all kinds of crazy random thoughts we post there. We have a website, www.escapingsociety.weebly, B as in Borg, <laughs> dot com. Um, on our website, we have a donate button, so... We appreciate any donations that help us get down the road. As our theme song says, we live in our van. Our um, van door broke. Yeah, we used to, we, we take gigs where we can, but uh, with all this craziness and this pandemic, uh, things ain't what they used to be. And all the craziness of just trying to get along with people. My God, the divisiveness, man. Uh, it used to be you could just disagree with people. Now, <laughs> it's a kind of a big deal. It's a kind of a big deal. It's a kind of a big deal. Teresa's Italian, so I can I can say that. And uh, you're not racially offended, are you? No. All right, but don't you dare make any Polish jokes. <laughs> All right, and we try to uh, run on the value for value system. So if we have entertained, shocked, challenged, or uh, educated you in any way, please consider giving us a donation. We definitely appreciate it. Um, and please give us a review. Um, if you're listening on the Apple Podcast Carrier, maybe some others, you can give us five stars if you think we deserve it. And uh, we love, like, when people write us a review. Um, you know, and just write to us anyway, you know. Write us what you think, what your thoughts are. Um, we always like that. 
we really do enjoy that. Every time I get like a, a message, you know, it comes through my Gmail when we go into town and I'm like, oh, Teresa, somebody wrote to us and I read it out loud and we're, uh, you know, always really happy to receive those. So is there anything else, Teresa? No, just um, thank you so much for listening and tune in next time. Yeah, tune in. We've got so much more to cover and I believe this is at least going to be a three-part series, but uh yeah, I feel like we found one of those big umbrellas, you know, one of those things that I'm always looking for, like, what's behind the scenes? And, and nobody else is, is talking specifically about this, so um, we'll hope to be able to share this with you and um, not get canceled. We got the dirt, yo. Literally, we're hobos. Bye. Oh, society sucks and we don't need it. It's killing your kids, so why do you feed it? They'll tell you to stay, but you don't need to heed it. You can give them the finger. There's no time to linger. So, thank you for listening to our song. It's not very good and it went kind of long. Don't care if you like it, cause we'll be gone. Over that next horizon. We ain't got no address.